Good afternoon. You're listening to KFSK News for Friday, January 20th. I'm Hannah Floor. Dillingham police say the man accused of firing a shotgun at the local hospital on Sunday had also allegedly set fire to his girlfriend's bedroom that same morning. Daniel Cody Lewis has been charged with attempted murder after allegedly firing multiple rounds at Dillingham's hospital, according to court documents. Lewis is also charged with one count of arson and multiple counts of assault. The charges are labeled as domestic violence related. The court documents say officers received word of a fire in the residence Lewis shared with his girlfriend in Dillingham on Sunday morning. Officers arrived at the residence and found a fire lit inside his girlfriend's bedroom. Shots had been fired inside the residence as well, according to a witness statement included in the court documents. Later, the charges say that Lewis confronted his girlfriend in the hospital parking lot. She told police he physically assaulted her, and then she went inside of the hospital, after which he began to fire shots. A security officer at the scene told police that Lewis fired at the security booth where the officer was seated. At another booth near the entrance to the hospital's emergency room, and at the emergency room's glass door. Later, the security officer said Lewis fired into the hospital building from a large window outside of the hospital. The charges say Lewis then allegedly went to the hospital's ambulance bay and fired more shots. Dillingham's acting chief of police, Craig Main, said in a call to KDLG that the police received a call about the shooter around 6 in the morning. He said the suspect fled the hospital on a four-wheeler prior to the officer's arrival and was followed by Dillingham police until they arrested him downtown. Lewis's appearance bond has been set for $50,000. His performance bond has been set for $100,000. Petersburg is one step closer to having a wastewater upgrade after a unanimous vote by the borough's planning commission last week. Utility Director Carl Hagerman says that Pump Station 4 which is located on the north side of town near Hungry Point, is in bad shape. The borough uses a series of pump stations to push wastewater to the water treatment plant. A pump station takes water from a low point and it pumps it to a high point and then it gravity flows from that point to the next pump station. But because all the pump stations work together, it's not possible to just disable one when it needs an upgrade. The stations need to run continuously. Hagerman says the easiest solution is to build a new one right next to the old one. He says the switch can be seamless once the new one is finished. Then it really is just a matter of uh, making a piping connection to direct the wastewater to the new station, and then it's off and running. In order to do that, the borough needs the land next to the existing pump station, which is owned by John and Miriam Swanson. The borough proposed an exchange. They'd vacate a right-of-way between two pieces of Swanson's property, creating more land for the Swansons. In return, the Swansons would give them a small piece of land for the pump station and a utility easement through their property. That land swap was approved by the Planning Commission this week. The piping from the new pump station will be rerouted. It will pass through undeveloped, borough-owned land on the north end of the island near Hungry Point. Hagerman says that creates an opportunity for housing development because it would be cheaper to hook those parcels of land up to sewer lines in the future. It won't be right away, but it is the preliminary step to starting to develop that area for um, housing. But developing lots would take more than a sewer hookup. Hagerman says that if the borough were to sell, sell the property in the area, water and electricity would need to be added as well and the existing path would need to be upgraded to a road. 
that would increase the cost of the lot substantially. In other words, these lots wouldn't necessarily be affordable housing options. The initial push for uh, housing increases in Petersburg was centered on more affordable, you know, entry-level housing, whereas these lots did to be developed fully um, and if the, if the borough was going to get their money out of the, the cost of development would be pretty high. Funding for the project is still being worked out. Hagerman is working on an application for a loan from the Alaska Department of Environmental Conservation. And Hagerman says the design for the new pump station is still being finalized. He says he's hopeful that they will break ground on the new pump station this summer. The U.S. Supreme Court this week heard a case brought by a small boat fishermen on the East Coast. They object to a federal requirement that they pay to have observers aboard. Alaskans who work in federally regulated fisheries have a lot at stake in the case, but for reasons that have nothing to do with fisheries, observers, or even the ocean. As Liz Ruskin reports from Washington, D.C., the case could loosen federal regulation across the board. We'll hear argument first this morning in case 22-1219, Relentless versus the Department of Commerce. For a case brought by Atlantic herring fishermen rooted in the Magnuson-Stevens Act, the nation's foremost fishing law, fish were barely mentioned. Lawyers and the justices referred much more to an oil company. Chevron deference. Chevron deference. Chevron. Chevron. Which is Chevron. Chevron deference was a standard the court established in a 1984 case, and overturning it is the true aim of the Herring case. Chevron deference stands for the principle that if it's not clear what Congress meant when it passed a particular law, judges should give deference to the government agency's view, as long as that view is reasonable. Chevron is the backbone of federal regulation, whether it's an agency enforcing an environmental restriction, an aviation rule, or policing any of the other industries the feds regulate. Attorney Roman Martinez, representing the Atlantic herring fishermen, says Chevron deference means legal challenges are always tilted to favor the government. He says it takes away the authority of a judge to decide who has the better interpretation of a law. I think deference becomes problematic when it requires a judge to say that the law means X when really the judge thinks the law means why. Martinez argued in harmony with Justice Neil Gorsuch. Gorsuch says it's a question of who decides. Should a judge decide based on the strength of each side's argument, Gorsuch asks? Or does the judge abdicate that responsibility and say automatically, Whatever the agency says wins. Right, even even if the judge is not persuaded. Um, Justice Elena Kagan says that's not how Chevron deference works. She says a judge uses all tools available to glean congressional intent. The letter of the law, the context, the legislative history. And if there's still ambiguity, Kagan says it only makes sense to defer to the agency. Because they're subject matter experts. They know the facts on the ground. And unlike judges, agencies are at least accountable to an elected president. Kagan asked what happens when disputes arise over highly technical matters like artificial intelligence. Will courts be able to decide these issues as to things they know nothing about? Courts that are completely disconnected from the policy process, from the political process, um, uh, and, you know, they just don't have any expertise and, and uh, experience in an area 
or are people and agencies going to do that? That's what this case is about. The term fishing or fisherman was uttered only a handful of times over two hours, and at-sea observers, hardly at all. Sitka-based fisherman Linda Bankin is director of the Alaska Longline Fishermen's Association, representing small boat commercial harvesters of halibut and other federally regulated species. She says fishermen she knows have their own gripes about the observer program. But Bankin's emphasis is on sustainable fisheries, and she does not feel aligned with the Atlantic herring fishermen who brought the case to dump the Chevron Doctrine. Sounds like there's a pretty deliberate attempt to dismantle federal agencies and their authority to manage resources, and yes, that causes me some concern. A roster of conservatives and anti-regulation advocates wrote friend-of-the-court briefs arguing to end Chevron deference. They include the Goldwater Institute, Gun Owners of America, the vaping industry, and 18 states, including Alaska, through State Attorney General Treg Taylor. Those who weighed in to support regulation include the American Cancer Society, the Environmental Defense Fund, and a quartet of Democratic senators. A decision is expected by early July. Reporting from the Supreme Court, I'm Liz Ruskin. Landslides are almost impossible to forecast precisely, but scientists say more data could help. Southeast Alaska mostly lacks the kind of monitoring that could make people safer. But that might change with the installation of new weather stations in Wrangell at the site of November's deadly landslide. Anna Canny reports from Juneau. The Wrangell landslide happened in an instant. Somewhere high on a slope above Zimovia Highway, the earth shifted. And that triggered a river of mud that fanned out and ran down the hill for nearly 4,000 feet, crossing the beach and spilling into the ocean. People living on the hillside had little warning, just the sound of the slide coming their way. It buried two houses, leaving five people dead and one still missing. According to state geologist Barrett Salisbury with the Alaska Department of Natural Resources, it's extremely challenging to detect disasters like this before they happen. We're always going to be surprised by a landslide event. We could give you an estimate of where we think the hotspots for future activity could be, would be, but there's no guarantee and it's pretty unlikely that we would get all those spot on. One thing is guaranteed. Across the steep mountain slopes of southeast Alaska, those hot spots are everywhere. And human-caused climate change could trigger even more slides in the future. Landslides are incredibly complex. Each one is shaped by the unique geology, hydrology, and vegetation on a given slope. That's the biggest reason why they're so hard to predict. But scientists like state geologist Gabriel Wolken say that southeast also severely lacks the kinds of monitoring that could make people safer. We have, you know, this broad understanding of the different ingredients that come into play to aid the development of a landslide, but we still lack data. The ingredients are the basic when and where of slides. The when is most often shaped by heavy rain. All the deadly slides over the last decade in Wrangell, Haines, and Sitka all happened during strong rainstorms. On steep terrain, the earth is always resisting the pull of gravity. If there's enough rainfall at once, the soil can become saturated, and the solid earth transforms into a heavy slurry of water, mud, and other debris. Trees, shrubs, homes, cars, anything in the way becomes a part of this debris flow. 
it's incredibly difficult to figure out a threshold where there's enough rain to create landslide conditions. And the scarcity of weather stations makes it impossible. For most Southeast communities, the most complete and official weather data is collected at airports, which are on flat ground close to sea level. But the mix of ocean and steep mountains in the region causes weather to behave very differently across even small distances. There could have been a cloud literally was denser 10 miles away from town and it rained more or high winds were focused because of the shape of the mountains and the channels there to trigger that landslide, but we don't know. To remedy this problem, the Alaska Department of Transportation will install two new weather stations in Wrangell, one at the base of the slope and one near the ridge. That data may help scientists narrow down the when, at least. The where is much harder. But Walken says history is a good rule of thumb. There is this repetition on the landscape where one landslide has occurred in the past. There is then the possibility that landslides tend to occur in the same places. Residents across Wrangell Island have stories of smaller slides that have left piles of dirt in their own backyards. More overgrown slide scars can be spotted from planes or boats. And the November slide created new hotspots, including several smaller slides that broke off from the main path and stopped just short of houses. All of those paths are prone to slide again. Aerial surveys of Wrangell Island from before and after the November storm will be used to build models of the island's elevation. Scientists can use those models to find potentially unstable slopes. Wilkins says that's a good starting place. And working to collect more data on landslide conditions is especially important as warming driven by the burning of fossil fuels makes southeast even more slide prone. Particularly with increases in heavy rain, snowfall and rapid temperature changes, and in particular intense precipitation as we've seen be linked to some of these landslides. Scientists will never be able to pinpoint the next disaster. But after the deadly 2015 slide in Sitka, researchers started to develop a risk-based warning system founded in large part on rainfall data and records of past slides. Many Southeast communities, like Wrangell, are looking to that as an example of how they could monitor their slopes in the future. The effort to collect more data is just a small step in that direction. In Juneau, I'm Anna Canny. For KFSK, I'm Hannah Floor.